We're in Numbers chapter 12. I was debating whether to just restart Numbers at the first Sunday of the year or to jump back into our series. This is Sermon 20 in our Numbers series. And I'm hopeful to... um, I'm hopeful to actually preach through the entire book. There's only been one book that I stopped because I couldn't handle it pastorally. And that was the book of Deuteronomy. I forget where I was. Um, but Numbers 12. This is, a, this is a unique passage. Numbers 12. This is the word of God. Um, Numbers 12, verse 1. Hear God's perfect word. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman or Ethiopian woman, because he had married a Cushite woman or an Ethiopian woman. For they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, You three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent. He called Aaron and Miriam. When they had both come forward, he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then are you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he departed. When the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. As Aaron turned towards Miriam, behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, I beg you, do not account this sin to us, in which we have acted foolishly, in which we have sinned. O do not let her be like one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, O God, heal her, I pray. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, Would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside of the camp, and afterwards she may be received again. So Miriam was shut up outside of the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until Miriam was received again. Afterwards, however, the people moved out from Hazaruth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, I pray that I would hallow your name. We pray, Lord, that we would sanctify you as we desire to draw nigh to you by your power, Holy Spirit. Always, Jesus Christ, make intercession for us. Be thou, Lord Jesus, our mediator, that we would be received by your Father, even our Father. Help us understand, Lord, this passage, a painful, not terribly difficult, but terribly painful. Help us, uh, Lord, learn from even these negative examples and instructions for your people. Until you return, Jesus, may we fight against our own remaining sin. Uh, By your power, Holy Spirit. Amen. It's been a few weeks since we've been in 
the book of Numbers. So I want to just kind of do a very brief overview of the, the context of the entire book. The, the context of the entire book is that the people of God have now been liberated. Remember, they, they were slaves for over 400 years, 430 years. And they cried out to the Lord to liberate them. God did liberate them and brought them out with a mighty hand. And the book of Numbers is about the people of God going through the wilderness for 40 years. So they were in slaves. Now they are free. We're in the wilderness. That's the Numbers account. It's going to take them 40 years. And you remember why it's going to take them 40 years. It should have taken them 11 days to make it from Egypt into the promised land, 11 days hike. But the reason they didn't make it is because the better part of the military age spies were faithless to God. And God said, I'm going, to I'm going to take a trek that should have taken 11 days and I'm going to make it 40 years. And um, he was doing that, that he would test the people of God. This is Deuteronomy chapter 8, knowing what was in their heart, whether they would love him and serve him. And then he was doing that until the military age men of that generation died out. And then he brought the people of God into the uh, promised land. So it's about, Numbers is about the 40-year sojourn in uh, the, um, the desert. So the people that we're looking at in chapter 12, and I'm going to connect chapter 11 and chapter 12, is um, they are in the wilderness. They're not in the promised land. So if I could apply that, which is kind of typological, and the antitype is found in heaven, this is Hebrews chapter 11, that the earthly promised land was a prefigure of the promised land above. <coughs> Abraham knew it. All the patriarchs knew it. And so these people are in the wilderness, and they're going to the promised land. And the, the Bible uses the language that we are in the wilderness. We are in the Babylonian captivity. And we are on our sojourn. And we are going home, to use John Bunyan's phrase, to the celestial city. And so just uh, thematically what we're learning is the people of God are, are wrestling against their sin and the devil in the world all the way through their wilderness journey. There are views that... Um, that Christians can be perfected where there's no uh, practical sin, that they can be completely sanctified in this life. I think this text speaks against that. There are Christian views, eschatological views, where things just are so swimmingly good, there's practically no sin at all in the life because everyone's a believer or an intensely sanctified believer. I, I, don't, I think that text speaks against this. My own view from the Bible is that you and I as believers are going to be wrestling with our own sin and the sins of people around us all the way till we go to heaven. So this is the wilderness. We're not home yet, beloved. What's that hymn? Um, the world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. That's this. But they're fighting with sin the whole way. So there's no retirement age for a believer from fighting with, with sin. We're going to be fighting with sin all the way home. And the preeminent way that we do that is by faith in the Son of God, and um, as he reveals himself to us in his word. A couple of things that we're going to look at. Numbers chapter 12 is obviously a record of some sin. We'll talk about the kind of sin. But Numbers chapter 11, which preceded it, was, um, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, they were grumbling. And I'm going to flesh that out in some more detail. Numbers chapter 11, they're grumbling. Numbers chapter 12, they're grumbling. And when you look at it regarding the people, who they are, they're the people of God, they're Jews, they're not Gentiles, they're professing believers, they have all these wonderful privileges, you remember we talked about religious privileges and advantages, and so when the people of God are sinning, 
They're sinning against goodness. They're sinning against God himself, but it's against the goodness of God. So in Numbers chapter 11, the people are grumbling about the manna. Imagine that. Imagine if you didn't have to wake up and go to work. God just fed you. And then God said, don't worry about your clothes. They're never going to wear out. Don't worry about your feet. They're never going to swell. And don't worry about trying to know how you're going to get anywhere. I'm going to lead you. Don't worry about being protected. I'm going to protect you. You would say, well, I would be completely content. (laughs) But they weren't. These were professing believers. And they grumbled, 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 grumbled against goodness. And then when we come to chapter 12, there's some more grumbling, 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 grumbling by Miriam and Aaron that had some pretty high privileges in the household of God. Again, it would slow us down, I think, as we fight against sin, especially our own, to think that when we are sinning, whether it's against God directly or man directly, we're actually sinning against the goodness of God. And I would say the graced goodness of God, which means the only thing that we really merit is really demerit, is, is, is the justice of God. But God in Christ doesn't give us justice. He gives his son justice, and we get mercy. Um, every once in a while, I know it's, it's not biblical, I always think when something painful is happening to me, what have I, and I say to my wife, what have I done to deserve this painful thing? It's a game that she and I play. And she looks at me, and she laughs, and she says, plenty. <laughs> and I laugh and say, I know it's plenty we're sinning against goodness and they're grumbling against a gracious God, a kind God. So that's 11 and 12. I just want to set your minds at ease. With Numbers chapter 12, there's some subjects in the Bible that I I can be, not many, but there are some subjects I'm somewhat squeamish about. I don't like to talk about them. Racism is a subject I don't like to talk about. I'm fairly squeamish about it. Because it's so volatile. It's very popular in our culture. It, it's, it, it, when I say popular, I don't mean people like it, but they like to talk about it. And I don't like to talk about it because it's just so volatile. Um, my whole sermon from Numbers 12, just so you know, is not going to focus in on the racism that's here. There is some racism here, but that's not the primary thrust. I want to look at the sin as a continuation of the same sin that we see in Numbers 11, which is complaining <laughs> So yes, there is some racism involved concerning Moses' wife, the Cushite or the Ethiopian. I think that's a secondary issue or a tertiary issue. It's not the main sin that we find. So we're just seeing a continuation of the same problem among the people of God. They're discontent with what God has provided. They want what God has provided someone else. This is Aaron and Moses. And the same with the children of God. And the children of God in Numbers 11 said, we're, we're, we have it so hard as free, free men and free women. We want to be slaves again where we had it so good. Discontentment at their current condition and wanting a condition that they don't have. And they're wrong in their estimation. But that's what Miriam and Aaron are doing. This is just grumbling, uh, uh, envying, uh, discontentment, grieving at the good of their neighbor, which, of course, is the breach of the, um, the Tenth Commandment. So we're looking at sin among the people of God. And when we see the people of God in Numbers chapter 11 craving for something that God didn't give them and not wanting for the things that God gave them, um, and the same would be true for Moses and, excuse me, for Miriam and Aaron. Miriam and Aaron have something which other people in Israel didn't have, but God gave something else to Moses which they didn't have. 
and they're, they're coveting what Moses had. This is unbelief, beloved. This is the sin of unbelief. I mentioned it in Sunday school. Um, it, it, is a, it is a sin directly against God, which aggravates our sin. When we say to God, you have somehow made a mistake. Now, very infrequently do we as believers actually say those words. You, God, have done something wrong. You, God, have made a mistake. But that's exactly what's happening. Both in Numbers chapter 11 with the, with the group, with the congregation, and when we come to Numbers 12, which is just one family out of that a particular group, we have a grumbling nation, and then we have a grumbling family. And what's behind the grumbling is, 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 is unbelief. They reject God's word and God's providence over their life. It's really ugly. And I don't mean, this is not like let's depress ourselves for the last sermon of the year. This is for our instruction. So when we go to grumble, and I'm not going to say everybody in the room grumbles, but everybody in the room grumbles. I mean, it's just, this is so easy to grumble. All of us can remember the people that slighted us, hurt us, and we, we could have the movie right now. But many of us forget all of the good things. So it's very easy to grumble, but we would slow ourselves down when we would think, well, we're saying to God that you, you God, have made a mistake. It's unbelief. The other thing that we see regarding the, the, the larger sin of the complaining and so on, it's really the sin of idolatry. They're making something their idol. In the case of the congregation of Israel, they're craving meat and they don't want the bread. And to use the language of Philippians, what then becomes their God? Their belly becomes their God. They want certain foods. They want certain pleasures. They're belly idolaters. They're pleasure idolaters, which is hedonism. And to some degree, uh, Miriam and Aaron fall into that same kind of idolatry. Honor for them would be their idol. So it's the sin of idolatry. And the other thing, we've talked about it all along, it's just covetousness. It's envying um, at... uh, at our neighbor and the things that our neighbors possess. And behind all of this and is, um, it's a mother's sin, which all of us wrestle with until we de- the day we die. I think it's one of the worst sins of the Bible. It's um, certainly with Aaron and Miriam we see it. It's the sin of what? What do you see? Behind the unbelief and the idolatry and the covetousness and the envy, it's the sin of pride. That's what's going on. So pride is a horrible sin in that it basically says to God and to man, I should be higher than I am. I should be higher in honor. I should be higher in gifts. I should be higher in accolades. I should be higher. I should be higher. And in fact, pride says I should be highest. That's what's going on. So yes, there's some racism here we'll talk about. And then as it replied to the congregation, the people of God grumbling, 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 And then what happened with Moses in Numbers chapter 11? He cracked like an egg. The grumbling of the people drove him to grumble and complain. And then he said to God, if you like me even a little bit, I'm paraphrasing, please kill me. Don't even let me live. That's the sin of self-pity. That itself is a sin, although I do empathize with Moses. But we're going to learn something about grumbling and complaining and envying and all of these kind of things, both with the congregation in 11 and with the little family in chapter 12. It's infectious. Sin is, in, is infectious. The sin of discontentment, moaning, groaning, griping, Mr. Gloom and Doom, it's infectious. 
And I myself am horribly guilty of, horribly guilty of this. So this is, this is a convicting passage. And so what you find is the grumblers are among Israel are helping themselves grumble. They finally crack their leader. He grumbles. And then when we come to this family discord, what do you see? Brother and sister get together. They're not talking to Moses. Actually, they're not saying, Moses, we have this problem. That would be, I guess, the way that they should have handled their family squabbles. Instead, what you had is one disgruntled family member getting together with the other disgruntled family member and said, look at that lousy family member. And they help feed all of those sins that we just talked about. Unbelief, idolatry, pride, covetousness. It just grows like a cancer. Again, this is all designed for us to see the sin for what it is. If we could ever, how the devil gets us to sin, or one of his methods is to dress up sin, which is exceedingly ugly and offensive, and he paints it in beautiful pictures. And so what we're looking at is the beautiful disguise of sin, but what this is doing is helping taking the disguise off, and we can look and say, boy, this is ugly. That's correct. And so then we're not attracted to it. So if we could learn, if we are in the complaining mood, let's say, let's say, what, what's the best recourse for us when we, when we are feeling like just a Krabby Patty? You know the guy in whatever, who's the cartoon? Krabby Patty. Sometimes I'll tell my wife, she'll say, well, let's talk, let's talk. I'm like, you know what? I'm feeling really like a Krabby Patty like now. I don't think we should talk because all it's going to be is, let me calm down. And then I won't hurt you and won't further hurt me and all of that. That's this. A sin is infectious. Discontentment is infectious. That's this. And then it's going to spread through the congregation and through the particular family. So in chapter 11, we see something. God finds out about their people's grumbling. And then in the family discord in chapter 12, God finds out, obviously. And God looks at this sin of um, pride and covetousness and grumbling and moaning and griping and these kind of things and speaking against the leader. And God has a certain response to this. And what's the response of God? He is what? He's angry. He's angry. I just watched a very popular talking head. He's a conservative talking head. He says he's a Christian, though he's a, uh, he's a Unitarian. He's not, a, he's not a professing Unitarian, but he's a Unitarian in his theology. He denies the Trinity, and Christians lap this guy up left and right. Um, we, they shouldn't. And I watched him say the other day that God ha- the God of the Bible has no anger. You're not reading the Bible. You, you are not reading the Bible. He has anger on the unbeliever, and he has anger on the believer. And the anger on the un- un- unbeliever is judicial, and the anger on the believer is, is filial. You're just simply not reading the Bible. When God hears the people of God grumbling in chapter 11, what does he do? He rises up and he judges the whole lot of them. I would argue that they're probably the better part of unbelievers, so that's judgment to them. So he's clearly displeased, which shows us a couple of things about God as regards to our sin, which means he's omniscient. Usually when people sin, not always, you're doing one of these. You're looking around, right? You're looking around to see if who's looking so you can do something in secret. Imagine if we thought, which we should think, you, you can't do, God is literally, <laughs> we're doing everything before the face of God. So God is omniscient. He knows our sin. 
Then we see that he's omnipresent. He's there. And then when he judges the people of Israel, he's omnipresent. He said, one, I'm going to, okay, if you're, if you're lusting for meat, I'll give you meat. I'll give you so much meat, it will come out of your what? Your noses. So sometimes when God gives us the thing we crave, it's not always a blessing. When you are fattening up, there was, uh, what's the book? It's a trilogy series set in the, I don't know, the 1,000, 100, 1100s. It'll come to me. Something lark, something. And they, each home would have a pig. And they, would, they, were all, they were all rail thin. They didn't eat, but they were fattening that pig up. When you're giving the pig, the pig, the pig, and fattening that pig up, it's for a purpose. It's for the slaughter. So not every time when God says, okay, if you're griping, 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 lusting, 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 I'm going to let you have it. It can be justice. And then with the case of Miriam and with Aaron, it's not judicial anger, it's filial anger. So God is angry like a father at their sin. And so when he disciplines, it's correction, it's chastisement. It's to perfect us in the image of Jesus. It still hurts. That's why it's effective. I watched, Have you ever watched someone disciplined by corporal punishment, let's say a spanking, and they spank, buttercup, you're going to get a spanking. And it's like, oh, no, that's not a spanking. You need to talk to my mother when I was a kid or my dad. They would show you what a spanking was with a strap. Again, I'm not arguing for that. I'm just saying the difference between rubbing spanking and caressing spanking is it doesn't work. The reason it doesn't work is it doesn't sting. The reason the discipline of our folks worked is because it's, it's done. That's a Hebrews chapter 11. That's what's going to go on with Miriam. So judicial justice for the unbeliever. He's angry with sin, especially among the household of God. We, we see both from 11 to 12. Now, so I want us to see with Moses in particular, let's just unpack chapter 12 a little bit more. In chapter 12, we're looking at family fights or fights among siblings. So it's just kind of an extrapolating the sin that's going on that we've been talking about. It's family fights. One family in particular, the family of Moses. We have four people being mentioned. You have Moses, the wife of Moses. She's not named then we have Aaron, his older brother. Then we have Miriam. And so if you look at the family of Moses, Moses descends, uh, they, all three of them descend from Levi. Levi is the third son of uh, Jacob and Leah. Did Jacob and Leah have, just to use a phrase, did they have somewhat of a dysfunctional family? I would say so. It was somewhat dysfunctional. So Jacob has Leah, Rachel, a couple of maid concubines, and then he has 12 kids. And so Levi is the third, and so of Jacob and Leah. And so when we're looking at the, the, the people doing the sinning, they're Israelites. And, and with the tribe of Levi, God will take from the tribe of Levi his priestly officers. So regarding Aaron, and I'm not saying that Miriam is referred to as a prophetess, but that's a unique situation. But regarding Aaron, he's a church officer. So a couple of things. We have sinning Israelites, and then we have sinning church officers. Church membership does not stop sin from occurring in our lives. 
So it's every once in a while, I had a call the other day. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to church. I'm going to turn over a leaf. I'm going to do better. I hope you do. I hope you come to church. I hope you turn over a good leaf. But joining the church in some cultures is just joining the church. Well, joining the church isn't a magic bullet. There's no kryptonite. If you join the church, did you just kill all of the sin in your life? No, no. Are you still going to sin after you join the church? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, you should increasingly, progressively mortify your sin, but church membership doesn't kill your sin. What happens if you say, well, I'm really, really going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to become a minister. That will do it. If I become a minister, boy, howdy, I practically won't even sin anymore. Do you know any, do you know any ministers? If, if the minister isn't honest with you, there's one easy trick to find out how much sin he has. Talk to his wife. <laughs> She'll tell you how much sin he has in his life. So we have sinning Israelites, we have sinning church members, we have sinning church officers, all to aggravate the sin. Now, with, um, with, with particular the, the family that we're looking at, Levi has three sons himself, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Kohath, the second boy, has four sons. And the four sons he has are Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. Now, when we look at Moses, they're going to come from Amram. Amram. Amram, the second boy, marries his father Kohath's sister, Jochebed. So he marries his aunt. Later in the book of Leviticus, I think the word is consanguinity, closeness of blood. Later in redemptive history, God forbids these kind of marriages. Too much closeness of blood. But he marries his aunt. And they, now, obviously, we would think, boy, that's very strange. In a large family, it is possible to have almost no disparity of age between, say, an aunt and, in this case, a nephew. Even in my own day, I'm 59. I have my father's youngest brother. He's not that much older than me. So I was the second born of all the family. My older sister was the first, and then my youngest brother. So there might not have been that large of a disparity between uh, Amram uh, marrying his aunt. But So we have Amram, Jochebed, and Amram and Jochebed have Aaron, Moses, and Miriam. And now looking at these siblings... If you look at Exodus chapter 2, we know their relative ages. We're told at the birth of Moses, obviously he's newborn, uh, Aaron is three years old, his senior, and then we have the older sister. So Miriam is the oldest. We're not told how old she is, but remember when um, the mother um, tells uh, Miriam, put the little Moses in the, uh, in the little reed rush uh, boat, the girl is likely five to ten, something like that. So she's the elder, older sister, and then we have Aaron, and then we have Moses. And Moses, in God's alchemy, is the highest. It's that principle that God will choose the younger over the older, but that's what we have. So we have um, the siblings. We have sibling rivalry, uh, obviously. With Miriam, I just want to get a little bit at the who they are. All three of them are real believers. These, none of these people are we in any doubt whatsoever that they're born again. They're born again. God says in Micah chapter 6, he, he, he names all three of these, Aaron and Miriam and Moses, as, as honorable servants. Uh, 
So all three are real believers. So we can't say, well, if you squawk like this or covet like this or complain like this, or even if you're racist, that you categorically are not a believer. In fact, I've known some believers that I know for a, I would bet my teeth that they're in heaven. That expressed racism. How can that exist? It can exist. Some ugly sin can exist even in a true believer. These are true believers. It's not an excuse for any kind of sin. Not covetousness, not racism, none of it. But it does exist in the life of a true believer. And in addition, God says both of these, all three of the servants, but Aaron and Miriam, Miriam was given, she was inspired by the Holy Spirit to sing an inspired song of victory in Exodus chapter 15. So God actually calls her a prophetess, not the way that you would call a prophet preaching to the church. She seems to have given this inspired song to women, but I don't want to get too, taken too far afield. But she's inspired. He calls her a prophetess. He uses her greatly. Aaron is called the prophet of Moses when he confronts Pharaoh. He, he is the, the, he's the, the initial high priest, and then God will get the rest of the high priests through Aaron's family and the Levites through the larger tribal family. So these are true believers, but greatly honored true believers. These are honorable servants, all of them. And yet, what do we see? And greatly honorable servants grow sin. And I would say this, petty sin is super petty. Who's number one? We're number one. Younger brother, why should he be number one? It's super petty. Running down your brother's wife, super petty. Among, among amazing servants of God. Those things are not mutually exclusive. I almost quit seminary on my first class when I was taking a certain theological class and found in historical writings things that I thought were super offensive for a believer. And I said, well, how can a believer write these super offensive things? And my minister, Pastor Hobbes, said, well, God has taken the shine off of men and putting it back on God. Only God is perfect. Think of Martin Luther. Did Martin Luther, who was an eminent saint, did he not have some fairly large black spots? Did he not? I mean, go read his treatise on uh, the Jews and their lies. He had some fairly big black spots. What about John Calvin? I think killing heretics, burning them. Talk to Michael Servetus. He, he talked to his brother Pharaoh wanted a divorce. Go talk to Pharaoh's widow. I mean, Pharaoh, the, the wife, you read that whole account. This is like John Calvin, you write the Golden Book of Life, you like the Institutes, and you're torturing his wife because you want the divorce for, for Pharaoh, your brother? This is crazy time. What about Zwingli? Zwingli was the reformer, in, and people talk about Reformed Baptists. You wouldn't have said that to Zwingli. If you were a Baptist in Zwingli, Swiss, during the Swiss Revo, uh, 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 Reformation, they put you in a boat, hogtied you, with your hands and feet behind your boat, and pitched you in the lake. And Zwingli was given the thumbs up. These are amazing servants of God, real Christians, but with some curl, toe-curling sin. What does this cause us to do? To only worship and follow Christ. And for a servant of Christ, we follow them only insofar as they follow Christ. And when they don't follow Christ, we don't follow them. We don't idolize anyone. 
This is why in our modern age where everybody goes on the internet, they have their internet Christian guru. Don't do that. If you knew what the guru was like at the house, you wouldn't idolize them. Why? Because you'd see this. You'd see this. This is, isn't a way of putting the servant down. It's a way of elevating the master and putting the servant in the right perspective. So we have sibling rivalry, fighting, petty, squawking, and, and so on. And I do, I do, I, I mentioned it maybe, I think. None of us would want a microphone in our house, I don't think. Right? I don't think we would want one. Just our own family. Husband, wife, kiddos, whatever. Like family. I don't think anyone would want a microphone. We probably would never come to church if there was a recording, probably. Am I right with that? God says, here, let me show you one little family squabble, right? There is no real Christian person that you couldn't walk in their home, mine included, yours included, and say, wow, super sad. Real Christian husband, fighting with real Christian wife about some real sin. Fights. And the kids fighting with one another and the parents fighting with the kids and the kids fighting with the parents and just mom, dad, yuck. That's this. There's family fights. And I actually think, I could be wrong, I think the people we sin against the most, both in quantity and in quality, family. 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 We, we sin against our families most. And the, it's a simple reason. We're with them the most. And the other simple reason is we're, we're the most intimate with them. And what I mean by intimate is we're unguarded with them. Most husbands would never talk to their boss the way they talk to their wives. You know why? They would be fired. If they came home and talked to their boss, if they went to their boss like they talked to their wife, and they pitched a little fit, the boss would say, you, you, what, what's wrong with you? Off you go. And so all of us are less guarded with family. And I think there's, there's benefit to that because you can be more open and honest and intimate. But the flip side of that is we end up sinning against the people that we are are in our families um, most. And that certainly is happening here with this family feud. So we're, as regards to families, can there be families which we would say, uh, to use the phrase of the military, the military uses this phrase squared away. Are there families which are more squared away than others? Yeah, I suppose. Are there families without any of this stuff? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I used to joke, uh, Pete one time bought me that poster um, many years ago. I used to joke about my family being like the Norman Rockwell Thanksgiving photo. You remember that? It's iconic painting. The grandmother is bringing out this like delicious looking turkey and everybody has a tie on and they're like, and everybody looks like they have a job and no one's on drugs. <laughs> they're sitting around at this family and I get suck, such a chuckle out of it because when I think of my own family that I love madly, <laughs> it's the opposite. Everyone is a complete loon. I love them all. That's all of us. All of us. 
isn't there Uncle Bob and, and, and Aunt Sally? And we're all like, oh, don't, don't talk about Bob. <laughs> don't talk about Aunt Sally. That, that's this. So we're taught, not only do we have the family squalls, not to covet another family. It's easy to do. Oh, that church family. Oh, they're so, oh boy, they're the perfect this. And the kids are the perfect this. And their relationship with the folks are the perfect this. Nope. You remember the microphone? If you had the microphone, this is what you're listening to. So let's talk a little bit about what they're squawking about. I think to some degree, certainly, it's, there is a racist, racism problem here. So Aaron and Miriam, it looks like Miriam's the instigator. They're speaking against Moses, the text says. And so what they're doing is they're deriding Moses, but in, initially the reference is against his wife. So the sin is against directly Moses, which is a fifth commandment sin against authority. And the way that they do it is they're in, indirectly sinning against the wife. They're calling her a Cushite, which is clearly in their view, or an Ethiopian, a bad thing. So they actually, they break the ninth commandment. They deride the good name of their neighbor, the unnamed wife, and they break the fifth and the ninth with their brother Moses. So there are two views regarding this Cushite woman. I'm just, it's in my notes, it's lengthy, but I'll give you the short version. The short version is this. Either this woman is the first wife, Zipporah, who is the daughter of a Midianite priest, Jethro, sometimes called Ruel, which means friend of God. Midian becomes, they come from the tribe of the Kenites and they get absorbed into the Arabs. It's modern day Saudi Arabia. So um, Moses clearly marries a, a, a woman. Um, his first wife is, I think it's, this is his second wife, but his uh, wife is Zipporah. So she herself was not a Jewess. And so the view is, this is Zipporah who's being called a Cushite or an Ethiopian. Either she um, uh, was a Cushite, a Cush in, um, in Midian is being used interchangeably, which it is in one time in the Bible, or that she had a mixed lineage. Her dad was a Kenite and her mom was a Cushite Ethiopian. Or this is a second wife uh, for Moses, either when Zipporah died or he took her and he was a polygamist, and he had a Cushite. And almost in every other occasion, in one occasion, it does look like Midian and Cush is used interchangeably. In every other occasion, Cush is translated as Ethiopia, and it's really the area of Sudan. So it's Ethiopia, Sudan, and I want to say Eritrea. And so it's, it's under Egypt, obviously. And so the obvious uh, uh, criticism is that this woman is dark. And, and so the easier thing is to spend all of the time talking about racism, which as I've spent most of my time talking about other things, I don't think this is the main problem. The main problem is not really that he married a darker woman. They're clearly saying uh, Moses did something wrong by marrying a, dar a darker woman. We don't know how much darker because we don't know what color um, uh, Moses and Aaron and Miriam were either. But there clearly seems to be some measure of racism, i.e., we are lighter color, she is darker color, Moses did something bad by marrying a woman of darker color. That's the implication. And the punishment is, is, a, is a skin color punishment, which is funny because, not funny, haha, but God says if you have a problem with her being darker, I'm going to make you lighter with leprosy. 
So there is that racism view which goes on, again, among true believers. And they clearly see the darkness is, um, is something which, that is um, demeaning to, uh, to, um, to, to Moses. Just this sin, just briefly, deriding someone because of the amount of melanin in their skin is, is both silly and sinful. It's silly because we have nothing to do with it. It just comes from our mom or our dad. It's like saying you have blonde hair or black hair, or you're tall or you're short. Take it up with your dad. Take it up with your mom. This is just genes. And then ultimately take it up with God. And then when you think about the sin of like, you have more melanin, I have less melanin. If you believe the Bible, we all come from common stock. There's no such thing as pure race. It's absolutely silly. I mean, it's a silly sin. Why is there no pure race? We all come from two people. Adam and Eve, or we come from eight people who got off a boat, which is another way of saying what? We're all cousins. And so, the, the, so Moses was free to marry a woman that was darker. When you see the prohibitions against Israel intermarrying, it was just religious. It was not, it was not so-called race. It wasn't, it wasn't skin color. It was religion. And so in the Christian church, you could have a lighter boy or a lighter girl marrying a darker girl or a darker boy or whatever they are, if they're believers, it's not sin. But they clearly were saying there is some kind of sin associated with, with uh, interracial so-called amalgamation, which I would say to the modern kinist is what they call themselves. Remember Miriam. This seems fairly, fairly wrong. But I, that's not the main idea. They're, picking on, they're not picking on the woman directly. They're grumbling among themselves, and they just use it. This is an excuse sin. The real sin is not picking on the darker wife. They're just picking on the darker wife because they have a larger bone to pick with Moses. This is the real sin they're getting at, is envy, is leadership envy. The color thing, the color thing is just an add-on. When you want to criticize someone, when you're in the criticism mood, when you turn that switch on, what, what are you doing? You're just looking for something. Oh, yeah, look at his wife. She's got glasses. Look at his wife. She doesn't have glasses. <laughs> look at his wife. She's got blonde hair. Look at his wife. She's got black hair. You're just looking for an excuse. That's just an excuse to criticize the guy that you've got your criticized switch on. And what they're doing is saying, why is he the leader? I'm the older sister. Aaron's the older brother. We've both been inspired. We've both prophesied. Why is he the leader? That's envy. That's the greater problem problem they don't think their younger brother should be higher than them in god's use as the leader that's the problem they want to be the leader and then god says what i'm going to cure your race problem i'm going to cure your envy problem you both want to be high and he does seem to single out uh, miriam and he doesn't i don't think aaron gets a pass but Aaron, I don't think, is being struck in, stricken with leprosy because he's the high priest, and that could be another sermon. But he strikes her with leprosy. And if you know Leviticus chapter 13, with leprosy, she couldn't have communion with God. She couldn't come anywhere near the sanctuary, the tent of meeting. So no communion with God and no communion with God's people. That's the whole idea of living outside the camp. She's a walking dead woman. And God's essentially saying, oh, you think you're higher than the Ethiopian girl. You're going to be outside the camp. Oh, you think you're higher than your brother. You're out. You have no relationship. You're out. And then Moses doesn't respond because he's meek. 
He lets God doing his, his responding. And then Aaron says what? And Moses cries out, God, God, heal her. And God is going to heal her. Could God have healed her instantly? Yes, he could have. But he doesn't. He lets her sit in leprosy for how long? One week. And then she can come back. I'm going to argue this and then I, I'll be quiet. Sometimes when things are rectified more quickly, we have less occasion to repent more deeply. And sometimes when we sit in the consequences of our sin, we learn the lesson better. And she sat for a week alone, I'm sure, in her prayers. Now God healed her and restored her, but he gave her one whole week to think about the sins that she's done, all designed by a good and a loving father. But sometimes God puts us in a place, which is a painful place, and doesn't immediately take us out in the purposes that we would learn the ugliness of sin in the beauty and the need that we have of our Savior. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.